everyone, do take your Bibles together with me and open in them back to John chapter 13. You know, last week we jumped into a section of the text uh, that was pretty long. There was a lot going on there, and certainly there was richness that is worth us not just rushing through. And so if you'll remember, what we're doing here today is picking up where we left off, essentially with part two from our message together last week. And I'm Very grateful that we're able to split it up like this because there was a lot of ground for us to cover last week and there remains a lot of really rich territory for us to cover here this week. So John chapter 13 and we'll pick it back up here in verse 27. Now, if you if you were here last week, you will know what I'm talking about. But it's true that a distinguishing mark of good literature is found in the power of an author building contrasting characters. See, a great author is going to build out great characters. And for a main character to truly be great, there has to be a bad character, an antagonist, who is the opposite of being great. You see, it's as we see the the badness of the antagonist that we are able to appreciate together the goodness of the main character or the protagonist. In literature, these are called foil characters, someone who allows us to appreciate the beauty of the main character. Let me illustrate it for you. For instance, what would Dr. Jekyll be without the infamous Mr. Hyde? It is the existence of Mr. Hyde that gives Jekyll his meaning. Or... Similarly, what would Sherlock be and the brilliance of Sherlock if we did not also simultaneously have the bumbling Watson? You see, it's his foolishness that allows us to truly gain an appreciation for the brilliance of said detective. Or, alternatively, you would never be able to know the nobility of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar if you were not able to simultaneously see the traitorous villain that is known to us as Brutus. See, that's the point. You, you can't understand the greatness of the main character until you see, first see him contrasted with the despicableness of an opposite kind of character. And as we go back in our attention now to John chapter 13, we find the Apostle John using this very same literary device, a foil character, if you will, to make a very powerful point. He is amplifying here in our text the absolute beauty, majesty, grandeur of the love of Jesus Christ, who is always the main character, by showing us the horror of, of mankind's sin-stained, darkened heart as personified in the foil character of none other than Judas Iscariot. And indeed, in this text, as we started working through it last week together, did we not already see these two characters standing in sharp contrast with one another? I mean, on the one hand, over here, we've got Judas, who is the very living, breathing embodiment, the epitome of a dark-hearted, treacherous traitor, a man who is filled up to overflowing with hatred and hypocrisy. But on the other hand, it's the reality of who Judas is that allows us to appreciate the other character, 
the main character in our text, Jesus, who is the very personification of the light from God, a man who is filled with the fullness of divine love and forgiveness. It's largely the darkness over here that amplifies and helps us understand the beauty of what we find on this side in the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if you recall last time, we saw very clearly and covered this territory already, did we not? We saw the beautiful light of Christ as he shines down into the darkness of Judas's heart and gives him one final offer to come back and repent. Judas, if you receive me, you will also receive the Father. That's a message of light from heaven to Judas. And at the same time, we also saw the love of Christ on display as he gives this traitor an offer of friendship as well. See, it's the magnificent love of Christ that here in the text has pushed Judas to make a choice. He is at the point of decision where we left off in verse 26. He can choose to repent and receive the life of Christ, or he can continue down his dark path and be absolutely lost forever. You see, that right there is the decision point where we left off last week. The critical pivot in the story where we left Judas. What is he now going to choose to do? Now, we all know the end of his story, obviously, because we know the story of Scripture. But the more important question for us this morning here is not just to examine and see the choice that Judas makes. It's to stop and seek to understand the same choice that exists before all of us. See, if you recall, we left off last week by acknowledging the reality that the very same choice that was in front of Judas stands in front of every single one of us. Are we going to love the darkness and pursue it? Or will we, in light of Christ's love for us, walk in the light? And so we've got to pick up this text this morning, as I just said, not only with a consideration of Judas's choice, we know that answer, but more importantly with an eye on the choice that is before us, because that is the question that is even now still being answered right here in this room. See, considering the light and the love of Jesus that has been delivered to us, will we, like Judas, walk in the darkness? Or will we run to the light that radiates from the person of Jesus Christ? That is the key question that is before us this morning here in this text. So let's consider each side of that choice, each pathway that is possible before us, a pathway that resides in the darkness and a pathway that pursues the light. Let's look at both of those pathways and use what we learn to inform the choice and the determination that we must now make. Let's start with the pathway that leads into the darkness, because that is the pathway that we find Judas on here in the text. Indeed, he is lost in the darkness. You can find life instead of darkness, or you can be lost in the darkness, and Judas makes a choice that sadly, tragically, 
forces him into a place where he is forever lost to the darkness. Let me just begin reading in verse 25 here so we can get a running start before we pick this up in verse 27. So that disciple, we're talking about John, the author of this gospel, was leaning back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it, this traitor that is going to betray you? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then these chilling words. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. You see, that is the choice that Judas makes that we must examine together this morning because there are going to be some dire consequences to choosing to run to the darkness because your deeds are evil. Let's just break this down and seek to understand this here. Now, right off the bat, it's very important for us to notice that Judas is not some victim in a cosmic war here, all right? He's not as though he is a pawn to the power of Satan. The text does not say that Satan entered Judas over his loudest kinds of protest. It doesn't say that. Nor does it say that Judas, Judas, poor Judas, had no choice before him, having been predestined before creation to play this terrible role in the redemptive drama. No, Judas, as he's presented to us in the text, is a willing participant. He is doing what he most desires to do. And therefore, he willingly submits himself to both the power of the evil one and the providence of God, because what Judas is doing is not outside of God's plan. But even considering God's providence and Satan's power, Judas is still fully responsible for the choice that he is making here in this text before us. See, as one commentator has put it, the devil had put an evil suggestion into the heart of Judas. You can see that back in verse 2 of chapter 13. But it was Judas that acted on that suggestion. And now, in light of his choice, now the devil puts himself into Judas's heart. See, the key thing to recognize here is that all of this, this choice that he makes, it required his consent. And so, in that moment, even as the bread exchanges hands from Jesus down to Judas, the choice is made. And so, his soul, in that choice, is now surrendered out of the band of disciples and given over to the evil one, never to return again. Because from here on out, folks, Judas is lost to the darkness. And as we keep reading there in verse 27, we find the consequences of his choice. Jesus then said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. That statement could really be translated this way. Judas, what you have set your heart upon to do, go ahead and do it faster. See, Jesus, Judas is there in the presence of the light of the world. And because he chooses the darkness, because his deeds are evil, Jesus 
shows him the door and pushes him through it, relegating him forever to the darkness. And that, my friends, that is the consequence of choosing to love the darkness rather than coming to the light. See, this is a statement from Jesus here that is not a statement that is made with any kind of spite or malice, but it's one that is clear nonetheless. Judas, what you're going to do, get a move on, and there is the door. Be gone with you. See, if you, if you despise the salvation that Jesus has come to offer, and you willfully and intentionally choose to love the darkness instead, then there is going to be a natural consequence to that choice. And it's this. Everyone who insists upon walking in the darkness will ultimately be turned over and left to that darkness and it will absolutely consume you. And that's why the text goes on to say, and now it was night because Judas is lost to the darkness. You know, the Apostle John, a man who was in a pretty good seat to see the action here that night, he reflected on this moment much later in his life, and he made this comment about what it looks like when someone loves the darkness, a comment that I think we would all do well to listen to as we evaluate our own lives. John says over in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so here's the implication of that. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, while we love the darkness, then here's the reality. You lie, John says, and you do not practice the truth. How did he know that? Because he had practice identifying a liar there in the upper room. Someone who loved and walked in the darkness even while saying that he had fellowship with the light. John goes on to say, look, if we, have no, if we say we have no sin, all we're doing is deceiving ourselves and the truth, it is not in us. But here's the point that we really need to make sure we understand as we keep rolling down through this text. We get down to verses 29 through 30, and here's what we discover about what is going on in that room. You see, in the case of Judas, as we stand on the timeline way ahead of him, we can look back in judgment on his despicable deed, and rightly so, and it's really easy for us to see, is it not, the darkness that had taken root in the heart of Judas. We look back and we say, well, of course it was Judas. Just look at him. The devil's in his heart, and, and we can see it clearly from the distance of 9,000 miles and 2,000 years. But there, in that room, on that day, it was not quite so clear. And I think there's a powerful lesson in that for us to understand now. Verses 29 and 30, everybody in the room thinks that Judas has a good reason for going out of the room. Some of them thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. But here's the reality it was still night for him. And yet none of them could see the reality of it. 
Now, in retrospect, they would look back and understand it would all make sense to them because none of the explanations that they give here or the assumptions that they make in that moment, none of those things make sense anyway. But see, in that moment, they all trusted Judas, no one assuming that it could possibly be him. The only person in the room who knows that it is him, other than Jesus, is now the Apostle John. And John, what does he say in the text at this point? Absolutely nothing. And the reason for that is because his jaw is probably on the floor trying to reconcile what he thinks he knows about Judas based on his relationship to Judas and what Jesus has just told him. Don't you remember John's question, who is it? And Jesus tells him, it's essentially Judas. But even despite that, John still can't wrap his mind around it. How can this be? That's how thoroughly Judas had deceived them all. All of them, save Jesus, were deceived by the appearance of Judas. We're told in the text that no one at the table would have guessed that it would have been Judas. And yet, the reality of his heart, it was pitch black. Midnight with no moon and nobody there was aware of it. See, everybody assumed that Judas was good, and yet the reality is his heart is lost in the darkness. It is night. You see, his heart is inky, black, wicked, lost, and everybody present is fooled by the veneer, which is something that we would do well to take notice of. Let me illustrate the importance of that this way. You know, this week at... My lovely wife, Michelle's request. I had the wonderful opportunity to refinish a whole bunch of bedroom furniture. That honeydew list, gentlemen, you never get down to the end of it, do you? That's the lesson that I'm learning. But see, I, I sanded it all down. I primed it. I painted it twice. And as I was preparing to put on the final coat, I looked at the product, beautiful sheen, pure white, and I thought to myself, you did a really good job. And then I noticed the giant scratch in the middle of the headboard where all of the paint and primer had been peeled away by the hard edge of something else. And I thought to myself, so much for, for the good job, what happened? Well, as any professional painter would tell you, clearly, kiddo, you didn't prepare the wood underneath properly. You didn't sand through all the old finish, and that's the reason why the paint ain't sticking, and it's not going to stick. You see, that job was worthless. Despite the apparent beauty of it, there was a problem underlying it. And even though I had put on so many coats of beautiful white paint, it did nothing to change the reality of what was underneath. You see, the veneer that was there, the paint job that was on it, looked for all the world like it was really good until all of a sudden something brushed up against it and that paint came right off, revealing the reality of what was actually underneath. It looked for all the world like it was good, but it was not good. I'm not about to go into business, just for the record. But you see, I think that there's a, a powerful reality in that image and in this text for us to grapple with here spiritually, and that's this. It is entirely possible for someone who is lost in the darkness 
to present themselves successfully as being a child of the light, deceiving everyone into believing that I love the light. I soak it up. I bask in the glory and the warmth of Jesus Christ. After all, was not Judas himself in the very seat of honor there in that room? I mean, even as they're walking in the darkness, even as Judas is walking in the darkness, all looks very well. No one would ever have suspected him, but all was not well. Why? Because he loved the darkness, his deeds being evil. And here's the scary part. If Judas, with the depths of depravity that we know he was engaged in, Satan himself in his very soul could pull it off, how so then too could you not pull it off? And that's what's even more terrifying. See, it's possible for a person to deceive those who are around them. It's possible for a person to even deceive themselves. Don't the scriptures talk about the deceitfulness of sin as being your master? Hebrews chapter 3 talks about the reality that, that sin is deceitful. It is a tricky master that loves to betray and to deceive and to destroy. In fact, did not Jesus say this himself in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 about our ability to deceive ourselves? He says, watch out. Because there are many people who say, it is well with my soul, but it is not. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wor mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. And that is the point here. Everybody in that room, Judas included, could not see the reality of his heart. But Jesus knew, and now that Judas is gone, he leaves the room out into the blackness of the night. Jesus explains how the rest of the 11 men in that room and how everybody else in this room can avoid ending up like Judas. Because here he gives us an alternative pathway that we would do very well to sit up and pay attention to now. You see, he's offering us now life instead of darkness. You don't have to be lost. You don't have to be wondering and to be self-deceived. No, you can have life and know that you have life. So, Jesus, tell us here. Well... Verse 31 here in the text, as we turn the corner into this other pathway, Jesus really gets down to business. And it really kicks off here a section of Scripture that is known as being the farewell discourse. And it covers the next four and a half chapters. See, Jesus' explanation to his followers and to us about how we can know for sure that we're on the pathway to the light, knowing the reality of his love and are not self-deceived, takes up the next four and a half chapters worth of explanation. And Jesus, being the master teacher that he is, he basically gives us his propositional statement, his thesis right up front here. That's what verses 31 to 35 represent. They are, if you will, the theme song to the rest of the explanation about how you can know for sure if you're on the pathway to life. And in these four verses, 
he is going to make essentially three statements that reveal to us three separate themes that are all going to get very largely expanded upon in the coming chapters. So for the sake of clarity, let me go ahead and give these themes to you up front. The first time you read verses 31 to 35, they seem like they're disconnected, randomized statement. You think, what, what, what is the theme that unites these things? The theme is very clear. This is how you can know the reality of eternal life as offered to you by Jesus Christ. All right, here are the three statements that Jesus makes. Theme one, you might want to write these down because we're going to come back to them many times in the coming months. Theme one, here's what God is up to. You can see that there in verses 31 and 32. He is seeking to bring himself glory as he pours out glory on his son. That is the reality of what God is doing in bringing salvation to mankind. He is glorifying himself. That's what God's up to here. Theme number two. How can I gain access to the work that God is doing? Well, that's what's given to us there in verse 33. It's through believing and abiding in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how you can get it. Then theme three, that's verses 34 and 35. Here's how you can prove you've got it by loving one another. All right, theme one, what is God doing? Theme two, how can you get it? Theme three, here's how you can prove it. That's the pathway that we're going to be examining here over the next number of months. And over the coming chapter, Jesus is going to return again and again and again to each of these themes. He's going to circle around them over and over, and he's going to drill a little bit deeper every time he touches on them. Now, I will tell you right up front that there is a lot of theology packed into these very short verses, and I spent about half my week trying to figure out how in the world to pack all the explanation of these verses into just half a sermon. And the answer is, you can't possibly do that. And I was a little worried about that until I realized we don't have to feel the urgency to say everything that could be said about the truth in these verses this morning because Jesus is going to spend the next four and a half chapters explaining it to us. So there will be plenty of time to get down into the details, enough for now to just give us an overview of the pathway to how we can find the life that Jesus is offering. That requires that we understand theme one, what God is doing. We understand theme two, how to get it. And that we understand theme three, how to prove that we've got it. So let's just unpack those themes here very quickly. Theme one, what God is doing. Look, if you want to walk in the light rather than being lost in the darkness, first things first. You have to seek first the kingdom of God. You have to concern yourself with the thing that God is most concerned with. And, and what is that thing that he is occupied in bringing about? Well, look at verses 31 and 32. Here's what it says. Now, once Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him at once. Do you see a theme 
being woven through those first two verses there. Something that Jesus repeats not once, not twice, not three times, but five times. You see, it's all about the glory of God. That's what Jesus says here. The thing that God is occupied accomplishing is bringing glory to the greatness of his name. And in the process, he is going to glorify my name and restore me to the glory that I knew before the foundation of time. And he is going to do that as he demonstrates his love towards sinners and brings them into a relationship with himself. And that is the way that the kingdom of God is now going to be established. And God's name is magnified and glorified throughout the rest of eternity because of it. That's what God is up to. That's what he is focused on. And he is going to do that as his son, Jesus Christ, pours out the love of God on people who least deserve it. You see, it's that understanding about what God is up to that we must fix our eyes on and pursue. This is all about the glory of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. You say, where do you get all that from? It's clear. What Jesus is doing here is going back to a well-known prophecy in the book of Daniel, chapter 7 specifically. A prophecy that the Jewish people had been looking forward to since the time that it had been given. Because here is what the Jewish people wanted to see happen. They wanted to see the Messiah come to inaugurate his kingdom and bring upon them the fullness of God's glory. And that's what Jesus is pointing to as he quotes from Daniel 7 here in John chapter 13. Here's what Daniel 7 has to say about the day that the glory of God would be known through the Son of Man. Daniel 7, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And so when Jesus shows up here at the upper room, calling himself the Son of Man, as he frequently did, and talking about the glory of God, folks, this is the fulfillment of all of the disciples' hopes and their dreams. The kingdom of God that shall never be destroyed, it's arrived, Jesus is saying. The Son of Man is going to glorify the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days is going to glorify the Son of Man. And, as, and as, as if that's not enough, on top of it all, Jesus goes on to say to the disciples in the context of that conversation, Luke twenty-two twenty-eight records this for us, you men are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And so I'm assigning to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you might eat and drink at my table and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And all of that is going to happen when? Starting right now, he says. It's going down. This is the ultimate room where it happened. And you can see their heads bobbing up and down saying, yes, bring it on. Where's the kingdom? Where's the glory? We want to see it. And friends, that is the bottom line in this first theme, this first statement that Jesus is making. You want to leave the darkness? You want to come to the light? You want to be in the kingdom of God? Heads not up and down. Yes, yes, yes. Then you need to pursue 
the glory of God that can only be seen in the person of Jesus Christ. For as he's about to explain in just a few short verses in chapter 14, verse 6, he is the only way. He's the only life. He's the only truth. There is no way by which you can see the glory of God apart from the person of Jesus. You've got to look at and to Him alone. For it's in Him that God is glorified. And that is His objective. But Jesus keeps going here. See, just as quickly as He raises the hopes of His disciples, He goes on now in verse 33 to seemingly dash them as He alludes to the means by which his glory is going to be manifested. Let me just make it very clear for you, because it was very confusing for the disciples. The only way to see the glory of God is as you embrace the foolish message of the cross. And that is theme two. Here is how you get access to what God is doing. Now, Even though Jesus doesn't use the word cross here, it's very clearly what he's talking about. Jesus, as he explains here, is going to go somewhere and do something that none of them or us could ever have done for ourselves. And that's why he says, little children, the ones that I love and have come for, the ones that I have chosen, yet a little while I am with you. And then you're going to seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. See, that is a direct reference to the moment of his glorification that would take place as he won salvation upon the cross, died and was buried and was raised again to ascend to the throne of the Father. That's what he's talking about when he's saying, I am going to leave you now. We understand that, but they don't understand it. So if we understand that, what does Jesus mean when he says, I'm going to leave you and you can't come with me? Well, it's really clear. There was something that he alone had to do in going to a place where we could not go. See, he had to take upon his shoulders the sin of mankind, a burden that we are not fit to carry. He had to bear for us the wrath of God, a wrath that would absolutely have consumed us. He had to receive eternal punishment in our place, a punishment that would have taken an eternity for us to pay for. And then he had to conquer death by crushing its head at the resurrection an action that none of us could possibly have accomplished for ourselves. And that's the reason why he says, where I'm going, you just simply cannot come because I'm going to do things for you that you must have done for you but cannot do for yourselves. See, that's what he's pointing our attention to here. I mean, it's so paradoxical. It's only as Christ left to accomplish that work that we are now enabled to come into his presence. There would be no ability for us to be in the presence of God if Jesus had not left to undertake all of this work for us. That is what he's pointing our attention to here. Now, in retrospect, we we understand the cross and what Jesus did there in our place on our behalf. 
But these disciples in the text now, as it unfolds, they cannot bring themselves to wrap their heads around it. They're so very confused. I mean, after all, they rightly could have said, Jesus, what are you talking about? Didn't you just say that the kingdom is coming and that we're going to rule and that starts right now? But then you're telling us that, that now we can't come with you? We're really confused. And they, they hold it in and stuff it down for two chapters. But in chapter 16, verse 17, it all finally comes out as the disciples finally explode with this statement. Now, some of them said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, so they were talking and saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. He's using figures of speech that are beyond our comprehension. Little wonder that they were confused, right? I mean, you can't blame them for that. I mean, on the one hand, Jesus is saying the kingdom starts now. On the other hand, he's saying, I'm leaving you. You can't come with me. I mean, those seem like antithetical statements to each other, but they're not. And Jesus was going to explain. He was not going to leave them confused. He was going to give them a clear explanation, and he'll do it over the next four chapters. But here's what we, looking back, understand already. You want to avoid the fate of Judas? You want to walk in the light? Well, theme one, fix your eyes on the glory of God as seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Seek first citizenship in his kingdom. But then theme two, that can only be granted to you as you embrace the cross-shaped work of Christ as he left and did a work on your behalf that only he could possibly have done for you. That is the way by which you get what God is giving. It's as you come in faith and cling to his work on your behalf, relinquishing your right and control and authority over your own life, turning your back upon your sin and your old ways, and turning to Jesus in faith, saying, Save me, for only you are able to do it. And it's at that point of faith that we are granted access into now the kingdom of God. We see, do we not? What God is doing, he is glorifying himself, and we should be concerned about that. We see clearly how to get it. We must approach the cross and embrace it as being the only message that can save us. Jesus having gone before us and done something for us that that we could never have done for ourselves. But now that leads us down to theme three here in the text. Having received what Jesus has done for us, having gotten what God is giving, how now do we prove to ourselves and to one another that we've actually got it? And see, this is the point that we've been wondering about all along, is it not? How do I know beyond a shadow of a a doubt if I've truly embraced the pathway that Jesus is presenting here to me? Well, that's theme three. Look with me at verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment now I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. Now, there's a number of liberal scholars who look at verses 34 and 35 and say those things were added after the fact because what do they have to do with anything that Jesus just said? Friends, they have everything to do with what Jesus just said. See, Jesus just told us that I am leaving. And he's going to say, so that I can go and prepare a place for you to come and be with me. Here is how I expect for you to live as it relates to each other while I'm gone. Here is how you are now to put feet to your faith in my work. It's as you show to one another the same heart and spirit that I have already shown to you. And that's the reason why he doesn't give us a suggestion here. He's not making a wish here. I hope you guys will get along after I'm gone. That is not what he's saying. What does he say? Look at the text. A new commandment I give to you. Now, what is it about that that's so important? I mean, this is a foundational statement to the reality of what it means to be a Christian here. We can't miss this or gloss over it or skip it. We have to understand it. What is the essence of this new command? Well, you see, the command to love one another, that's not new. That's something that had been repeated throughout the pages of the Old Testament. The expectation from the time of Deuteronomy was always that, that you would love God and love your fellow man. So that's not new. What is new? What's new is the model and the extent to which we are here called to love. Look at what he says. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Nothing new there. This is new. Just as I have loved you now. That's what's new. And have we not already seen the depth of the love that he's talking about? I mean, we're about to see the grandest display of that love when we get to the cross at the end of the story but we've already seen that love on display, not once, but twice, just here in this very chapter alone. I mean, think about it with me. As Jesus Christ himself, the holy God of heaven, comes and washes the feet of filthy mankind, sin-stained men, there he is, humbling himself, demonstrating a spirit of love for us. You continue on. And you see the way that the light of the world gives an offer of forgiveness and friendship to the traitor who was in the very act of stabbing him in the back. That is a love that forgives, is gracious and merciful. You see that right there. That's the kind of love that we're being called to emulate as it relates to one another. A love that forgives, a love that sacrifices, a love that is humble, a love that is gracious, a love that is merciful. We now have in the forefront of our vision clarity about how we are now to love one another. And Jesus says here that right there, your willingness to do it, that is the litmus test for how you can know whether or not you truly love the light or whether or not your deeds are sinful and you're lost in the darkness. The true test of a transformed heart is going to be the way by which you are willing to now love the unlovely 
just as Jesus first loved you, the most unlovely of all. Only a transformed heart can do this. And that's why Jesus points to this and says, if you want to know whether you're a child of the light or a child of the devil, look at how you're willing to love one another. Now, there's a lot that could be said here about exactly how that translates into action. And next week, we're going to embark upon a bit of a thematic study of what it looks like to love in this way specifically. And we'll, we'll apply that principle here to our lives and to our own church. But for now, I want for us to zero in on the reality that it is, that it is Christ-like for us to love in this way. And so we have to be willing, as we are confronted by this text, to ask ourselves a very simple question. What about me? Which pathway am I on? Well, as you look at your own life, examine your attitudes, actions, interactions, words and deeds to others within this body and perhaps within your own home. You see, it's those things, it's that fruit from your confession of faith that Jesus points your attention to here and says, it's by those deeds that all men will know the reality of whether or not you are my disciples or not. See, we don't do this in order to be saved. We do this because this is what every person who has been saved automatically will do. And so we have to ask ourselves, what do those deeds say about the reality of my faith? That's the question we ought to be grappling with as we go forth from here today. You know, the Apostle John, on this night in the upper room, he had the best seat in the house that night to see the truth of who Jesus was and to see the truth of who Judas was. I mean, if anybody could describe for us the beauty of these contrasting characters and then point us in the right direction, it is the Apostle John. After all, he's got his head on Jesus' chest, the Lord giving him specific private information that was hard for him to understand in that moment. What? Judas, how can these things be? But see, afterwards, John had plenty of time to decompress, to think and to meditate upon the difference in the lifestyle of one who loves the darkness and walks in it and one who walks in the light and pursues the glory of God. You see, after 60 years of time spent reflecting on the events of that night, John wrote an explanation of the lessons that he had learned in that room. And we've already heard his assessment, have we not, of the first option. Remember, John said, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But then John goes on to describe the way that a light-filled walk actually does look like. And I'll close with this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. For whoever does not practice righteousness, he's not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's how you know. For this, John says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should now love one another. And it's our willingness to love as Jesus loved us 
that demonstrates the reality of our faith or whether or not we've just slapped a fresh coat of paint on. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, I do pray that as a church family, we would take these lessons to heart, that we would be people who would indeed run from the darkness, that we would not deceive ourselves, that we would not love our evil deeds, but instead may we come to the beauty of who Jesus Christ is. May we embrace the work that he has done on our behalf And may we behold the glory of who you are as seen in Jesus Christ. And if those things have taken place and we have been saved through the blood of your Son, Lord, may we now be those who are faithful to put feet to our faith and put into practice these things that we have experienced. May we be now faithful to love as we have been loved. May we love well those in this church body knowing that we have been well-loved by our Savior. And may the reality of our faith be evident to all who were to peek over the fence and see who we are. May they see a people who love as Jesus has loved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's close by standing together and reading from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23. Peace be to all the brothers and love that comes from faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love that is incorruptible. Go in grace today.